last week during the announcements, we invited a number of people that wanted to come and stay and help us decorate to come and decorate. And I would have to say that we're grateful to all those who spent a few minutes decorating. And for those that, that helped elsewise, we're grateful that the church looks wonderful. Amen. I don't know if you're aware, but there's symbolism in absolutely every single thing that happens around the holiday season. And Christmas, you know, is, is filled with subtle reminders, some of them in your face, but you're so used to them that you don't see them. But you don't recognize that the significance of the coloring or, or all of the things, it all, it all can point right to Christ. The same way that, that everything that we're going to study over the course of the next three weeks is going to point right to Jesus throughout this time, including things that we, that we have just grown to see as part of the tradition, but we don't always understand the depth of their meaning. So this morning, I want you to turn with me in your Bibles to Matthew chapter 2. Now, traditionally, when we talk about the, the Christmas passage, obviously, Luke 2 is the one where we see Christ's birth, but there's something that occurs in the story that is oftentimes pushed together with it, is just smashed like a peanut butter and jelly sandwich together with it as though it happens at the exact same time. But what we're going to read this morning actually occurs a little bit later. And the narrative that you've been taught oftentimes is conveniently placed together, but they're actually not. And I'll talk about that a little bit more. But when you find Matthew chapter 2, if you look to verse number 1, and you would stand in honor of God's word. Matthew chapter 2, verse number 1 says this. Now, after Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea, in the days of Herod the king, behold, wise men from the east came to Jerusalem, saying, Where is he who has been born king of the Jews? For we have seen his star in the east and have come to worship him. When Herod the king heard this, he was troubled, and all Jerusalem with him. And when he had gathered all the chief priests and scribes of the people together, he inquired of them where the Christ was to be born. So they said to him, In Bethlehem of Judea, for thus it is written by the prophets, But you, Bethlehem, in the land of Judah, are not the least among the rulers of Judah, for out of you shall come a ruler who will shepherd my people, Israel. And Herod, when he had secretly called the wise men, determined from them what time the star appeared. And he sent them to Bethlehem and said, Go and search carefully for the young child. And when you have found him, bring back word to me that I may come and worship him also. When they heard the king, they departed. And behold, the star which they had seen in the east went before them till it came and stood over where the young child was born. When they saw the star, they rejoiced with exceedingly great joy. And when they had come into the house, they saw the young child with Mary, his mother, and fell down and worshipped him. And when they had opened their treasures, they presented gifts to him, gold, frankincense, and myrrh. Would you pray with me? Lord, we thank you that as we come to scriptures that oftentimes with fresh eyes, we look upon it again and we see things maybe that we've never seen before or that we see them with eyes leaning in to know just a little more detail, understanding the fine points just a little bit better. I pray that this morning as we look to the scriptures, we'll be reminded that there is so much to this story that, that maybe we have just a little more to learn. We ask, Lord, that you would guide us in this time. In Jesus' name, amen. There's a picture here, and most people, like I said, when you see the nativity scenes, and, and I've already kind of 
started chiseling away, no pun intended, at the, the look that we're taking at the, the manger scene when I, I expressed to you last week that it more than likely wasn't a wooden manger, that the troughs in the Middle East were hewn out of stone and it was a framing device, a picture. It points to Jesus' death, burial, and resurrection, and you see that. You see a picture of Jesus being laid in a stone at his birth, pointing to the end of his life where he'll be laid in a stone. And it's a significant, significant moment when you see the symbolism of it. Well, this morning, there's no exception. There's this beautiful symbol that appears here, these three gifts that will be presented. And I intend to spend a little bit of time each week for the next couple of weeks talking about these three gifts. And, and I'm going to just say this statement right out front, and you'll hear me say it a lot. But today we're going to talk about gold because the gold is significant, the frankincense is significant, and the myrrh is significant. And you say, well, well, how are these things significant? And most people would say, well, they're valuable and they're, they're gifts that would be given, but it's actually so much more than that. It tells a story. Throughout the chapter and chapter two, you see references to his kingship, his majesty, his crowning glory, that he's to be the king, right? Well, the first gift, the gift of gold, is a gift for kings. It is a gift that we'll talk much about before today is over. The second gift, the gift of frankincense, is a gift for sacrifice. It is used oftentimes in ritual sacrifices throughout Hebrew culture and understanding. And then the third gift is a gift of myrrh is used in death or burial process. And we see these things, and if you say, well, well what does this mean? Well, it tells us a story. But the wise men are given gifts that point to a narrative about who Jesus is. And all the symbolism ties together. Jesus is the king who's coming to give his life as a sacrifice and die for all of mankind. And when they present these gifts, it ought make us stammer in our speech and shudder just a little bit and quake just a little bit saying, it was always supposed to be this way, that this was God's plan. And, and I would have you look at your neighbor this morning and say, did you know that God has a plan? Now, I want you to look at your neighbor and say, because the Bible is filled with his plan. Let's read a little bit of that plan. Chapter 2, verse number 1. Now, after Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea, in the days of Herod the king, behold, wise men from the east came to Jerusalem, saying, Where is he who has been born king of the Jews? For we have seen his star in the east and have come to worship him. There's this peculiar model that we see unfolding. We see a king that, that is, is over a group of people. Herod, who has a real bumpy record, by the way. And he has a strong reach and a long arm. And he is, if you study all of the history about him, you'll understand that he is he is not a very just individual and he's somewhat unsettled in his nature and that he'll divide his kingdom up amongst his sons and it's a whole thing. But and in this moment, there's a collection of people that have decided to read the heavens and it causes them to make a journey to inquire in this man's kingdom about a future king. Now, if you want to see cool parallels in the Bible, you have to look at the framing devices that are all around us. We are studying in 1 Samuel on Wednesday nights. We've been talking about how the nation of Israel rejects God as king, and they are handpicking a king, and we're right at that part on Wednesday nights, and we're talking about this. 
And there's this really interesting piece where if you study that long enough with us and if we were in that, in that vein long enough, you'd see Saul becomes the king. And during the time of his reign, another man is told that he will be king. And it unsettles the current king. And you see this weird parallel here where you have this moment where Herod is king and the wise men show up and they say, hey, a group of the people that live in your midst, they're getting a king. The heavens have declared it. We want to spend some time with him. And imagine what that would do to the existing authority structures. Now, I don't know about you, but most of life can be boiled down to people having a sensation of power and control. And let me tell you something that I've learned in ministry, and this is a complete side note. If you feel like you want control, then you'll have to exercise some bit of power. And the more control you have, the more power you will have to exercise in order to hold on to that control. And the scripture teaches us that the thing that God wants for us is more grace, not more control. And so if you want a peaceful holiday season, stop asking to be in charge of all the stuff and start asking to be graceful in the stuff that's happening around you. Because for most of us, we go crazy and mad trying to govern all the pieces. But we see something unfolding in the scriptures where these men show up, this group, by which we have no real number. It, oftentimes it's said that there are three kings that show up, these wise men. And when we talk about them, we talk about three of them because there are three gifts. But we don't know how many of them there were. You, the expectation is, is these men being of important stature would have had an entourage and probably would have been a large caravan of people, which would have put the time of them arriving at Jesus at some time later. And I know this all feels very academic, but trust me when I say that it's important to sort out some of these details because they're showing up sometime later when Jesus has been in his family's home for some time. But isn't it cool that when you get to point number one in your bulletin, that we see the picture of the heavens declaring him, that, that that's what I would have you notice, that as we read the verse, for we have seen his star in the east and have come to worship him. About this time of year, we sometimes get real busy and we forget that when we're driving down the country road after dark and it's like dark at 4.30 now, right? And you see those Christmas lights. Whether the people in the houses that have them or not, believe it or not, the story of Jesus, the symbolism is before you. Those lights in a dark place, they ought to remind you of your king. That when you see them, you ought to get a little excitement and you say, he is indeed king of the whole world. We have seen the lights that declare him this time of year. But we... we we understand that there's something important, that everything is pointing to him. I love this picture, and it's really neat, and some would disagree with me, and, and I, I'm no student of, of, of the stars the way that others might be. But the way this is all tied off in a few verses, it's almost as if God Almighty is in charge of the stars in such a way that he can describe the glory of his son however he wants, because he is. And the heavens declare him. Wise men have been looking up at the night sky for a long, long time. The, the psalmist tells us that we ought to consider the glory of God by, de, by observing the night sky. 
The scripture tells us that he holds all of it in the span of his hand and he knows all the stars by name. If he decides to move one from here to here, man, that would make a big splash in the, in the, the solar systems if you know anything about stars. And it would make us real uncomfortable to think that they could be rearranged. But man, if it doesn't say that. Let's read a little further. Not only do the heavens declare him, but their intended behavior was to worship him as a result. Verse 3 says, When Herod the king heard this, he was troubled, and all Jerusalem with him. And I think this is interesting that the news began to splash out, right? The news begins to scatter out in the midst of, of the world that he lives in. That Herod has gotten this news, and he's troubled by it, and everybody begins to hear that the king is troubled, and they're troubled. Because when a king ain't happy, ain't nobody happy, right? Some of you in here that are grammar people are like, Brother Ben, don't do that. But isn't it amazing how he becomes unsettled because his power is being challenged just by the testimony of foreigners and how insecure the leadership around us looks. That's one of the beautiful things about the king who is Jesus is that he never looks insecure at any moment when he's on trial, when he's in the midst of questions, when he's being grilled by his own followers or his opposition who are out there. He is secure and he is easy as it goes, just able to answer them because he, he's sovereign and he has authority. It's why he's deserving of the gift of gold that comes to him. We could take a page, a note right off of his page to say we should be secure in our coming and going and knowing who the king is and not be so unsettled by the kingdoms and the rulers and the governments around us because we have a king that is not insecure and we have a kingdom by which we belong to if we follow him that is never shaken. Well, we see this picture. I shouldn't say never. I mean, I realize when the angels sing, it makes the whole foundation tremble, but that's another sermon for another day. When Herod the king heard this, he was troubled, and all Jerusalem with him. And when he had gathered all the chief priests and scribes of the people together, he inquired of them where the Christ was to be born. Isn't it something? We do this sometimes as people. When we don't know what to think, we are like, well, maybe we should get some advice on the matter. So let's gather up all the intelligent people we know. Let's get ourselves surrounded and insulated by all these other people, and let's find out what they have to say on the matter. And sometimes, you know what that means? You just have a big room full of people who also don't know anything, making some kind of decisions about what they don't know. And maybe they know a little bit. And you see them lean in in this moment, and you know what that, what that tells us is, is that they know something about the history, but not very much about the present or the future. It says in verse number five, so they said to him, in Bethlehem of Judea, for thus it is written by the prophet. And now mind you that the previous verses, whether, when he's inquired them, he's asking them where the Christ is to be born, and they say Bethlehem. The Hebrew word for Bethlehem is house of bread. That, that's how those words fit together. For thus it is written by the prophet, but you, Bethlehem, in the land of Judah, are not the last, or least, excuse me, among the rulers of Judah. For out of you shall come a ruler who will shepherd my people, Israel. And this is an interesting picture here that the prophet speaks and says that this Messiah, this Christ, 
And there's so much to unpack there with the name and the title, Christ and Messiah. But we get this picture of a ruler. But I want you to see how powerful the wording is here. It says the ruler will shepherd the people. The chief goal of a shepherd is to be accountable for all of the sheep. Look at your neighbor and say, all of the sheep. Point number two, by the way, in your bulletin is the scriptures declare him. They have from the Old Testament, they do in the present, they will going forward. All the prophecies have yet to be fulfilled. But we see this picture of shepherd, and the shepherd is accounting for all of the sheep. There's something really amazing about the person of Jesus being the Christ, and that is this. He is a ruler who not only is he confident and and lacking insecurity in any measure, but one of the chief descriptors of him is he is a shepherd. With correction and inclusion in his model to keep every one of his sheep safe, his model is designed so that we can see him as being some, some ruler that cares. Now, I guarantee, I guarantee that your state and local authorities, they know some of you. They do. They have to. You know why? Because you're part of their constituency. You might know them from growing up around them. They might be your peers. They might be people you went to school with. You know some of them. You get out a little further in the governor, he might know a couple of you. The senators and the, the, your, your, your representation in our greater government might know who you are, maybe. But for most of us, we don't know those people. We don't know them, and the further away they get from us, we sure don't know them. Hey, you might even be, be, be popular enough or powerful enough in your life that you might have known somebody that's a leader in another state from somewhere else. And most of us in this room probably have no connection whatsoever to our current president or previous president. And he would tell you all day long, and all of them have, how grateful they are for your support and your vote. But I want to share with you a significant difference between them and Jesus. I've preached it, and I'll continue to preach it. He's a shepherd who knows your name. He knows who you are. Isn't it really cool that you have a king that knows you personally? and wants to have a thriving and ongoing relationship. And he knows, because a shepherd, and the picture of a shepherd is one who deals with all of the things that are irritating in your life. When you see that picture in the Psalms, that he anoints my head with oil, that's a picture of taking all the irritation away, all the little insects and bugs that would bother you. To put that oil on you is to rid you of all the, the hindrances that would keep you from being healthy. And you see this picture of shepherd is one who comes before comes before the master and says, I have accounted for all my sheep. A good shepherd would go into the countryside to find a dead carcass of a sheep so that he could bring back a carcass and say, it was killed by wolves. He would account for absolutely every single one if he was a good shepherd. And that's the picture of him in Scripture, that he's a ruler who will shepherd the people. Do you like your king? That's saying something, and it's actually a really interesting parallel. Because you know what I have found? It doesn't matter who wins the elections. Somebody always hates the current leader. Don't read bumper stickers in America if you don't agree with me. 
But isn't it really amazing that you could, you could not only like, but you could love this ruler. You could love him because he loves you. You could have an ongoing and beautiful relationship because the scriptures have declared him in such a way that he is a ruler who is just and secure and he is powerful and he's not abusive in any of it, but he's described as shepherd. And when the wise men show up to offer him a gift, the first one is gold. Because gold is a picture of a metal that doesn't tarnish, a metal that is pure, a metal that's value is outstanding, one of the highest standards of, of wealth. For, for some time in American history, and I hate to burst your bubble, but for some time in American history, all of your dollars were backed by gold somewhere. It's not that, that's not the truth anymore. Now they're, they're backed by, you know, well, your confidence in them. Be careful. The scripture goes on after the, the reading of this prophecy to say this. Herod, when he had secretly called the wise men, determined from them what time the star appeared, and he sent them to Bethlehem and said, go and search carefully for the young child, and when you have found him, bring back word to me that I may come and worship him also. Man, for those of you that have been here on Wednesday night, you know that one of the declarations is, is that the kings that would, be, that would be in place of God as king would use the people, and there's no exception here. Herod is using the wise men. He is putting them into play to get from them something that he wants. Verse number nine says, when they heard the king, they departed. And behold, the star which they had seen in the east, and this is the part that makes my head hurt. It says that the star that's in the east, it says it went before them till it could and stood over where the child was born. And I think to myself, of everything I have ever studied, that you could map the entire of the, the, of the universe by the, the fixed nature of the stars that still burn bright. The only way that a star is moving is when it's dying. And you're overwhelmed by the sensation that God is, he is using a giant traffic signal in the universe to point out his son. And the wise men discern it as they go in this direction. And it is something that if you, if you, if you imagine with me the, the power of an almighty God, then you understand that it is not impossible for him to do so. But I'm going to tell you this. How many of you have ever moved the furniture around in your own house and forgot you did so, and then you walk through there in the dark and you bump into something? Anybody ever done that? Well, you can't just rearrange the heavens without bumping into some furniture. Some things are fixtures in such a way that if you're going to rearrange something, or you're going to declare, or you're going to create, or you're going to take something away, it has an effect on every single thing that's out there. You can't tell me there's not some cost in the universe that is paid by God Almighty to point his son out. Whether the star is born there, or whether it is physically moved there, or whether it just all of a sudden becomes so brilliant that they can see it for the first time because it starts to cave in on itself, whatever. And by the way, it takes stars a long time to transmit their light to us so he was declaring it long before they saw it. Almost as if he's been declaring it always. Almost as if the whole of the story is declaring Jesus as king. And almost as if we're the slow ones just now catching up. That when we celebrate during this time of the season that we ought to behave just like the wise men. We have come to worship him. 
Oh, what a story it tells. There's this picture here. The young child being born, being declared by the star. It says in verse number 10, when they saw the star, they rejoiced with exceedingly great joy. Wouldn't you? You're like, you know, it's kind of like, you ever been on a road trip before the phone, which gave you all the directions in the whole world? If you could have internet signal, you could find out where you were going, right? How many of you love your phone that does this? Anybody in here? I know some of you are like, I don't understand what you're talking about, Brother Ben. Smartphone has a navigation piece on it. You can get directions. Anybody in here, you know, directionally impaired? I got to tell on a friend of mine that I used to work with. When I worked with him in Tulsa, we would go to get in the work truck, and I made him drive because he didn't didn't do so much in the physical labor part as he did in the paperwork. And I was like, if I'm going to lay on the ground underneath the vehicles, you got to drive. And we would go to leave the parking lot, and he'd say, where are we going this morning? And I would tell him what was first on the list, and he would say, which way is that? I was like, it's the same location every morning. Turn the way you turned yesterday, and he could not remember. So much so that I would just not talk to him. I'd get so mad at him because he didn't know the way. He was directionally impaired, and so I would just, if he heard me tapping on the window, he knew to turn to the right. And he knew if I wasn't tapping on the window that he would go left. You ever been lost? And then all of a sudden you find a piece of information that points you in the right direction. The wise men just found the sign that says that where they're heading is the right direction. And they get excited. Much the way that I suggest that many of us got excited when we first began to know Jesus and to hear that there's a direction to help us out of our lostness. That we should get super excited and get really, really energized by the possibility of having a Savior who cares about us, that we like, that likes us, that loves us intrinsically, and that it could be part of the narrative, and that we could give him even a small amount of our treasure in response. And you see this picture of their excitement. It says, and when they had come into the house, they saw the young child with Mary, his mother, and they fall down. It says they fell down and worshiped him. You know, you see this picture of wise men declaring him. That's point number three in your bulletin. The wise men declare him. They fall down and they worship him. They, they see him for who he is, and it's this, this moment. Uh, my mother tells a story of when I was very young that the teachers used to tell her, and I, I know there's a great number of educators here and have nothing but respect for, for all of our teachers. I will tell you that I would have been a challenging student in your classroom because I was hard to contain, and not that I was disobedient, but if I got excited about something, the testimony of my teacher was he would just get excited and he would bounce up out of his seat and move about the classroom with his excitement. And it might be about something I was learning. My family will tell you I still do this to a certain extent. If I get excited about something, that I'll just bounce around like Tigger around the house, and they're like, well, that's just my father or that's my husband, and that's just who he is. Just this excitement that lives in me to be for a thing. I think I scared Justin this week. I was looking at something in this, and it kind of spawned a thought. And I was like, man, and I got real loud. And he was like, are you okay? Yeah, I'm okay. I'm a little bit better now that I learned a new thing. These wise men, their, their, their declaration of him is evident in their, in their posture. 
Now, whether or not these individuals were sold out forever followers of Jesus, the Scripture speaks not to. But in this moment, we see their, their adoration of him. In this moment, we see what the Scripture says of them. And that's what we have. But then something else happens. It says, and when they had opened their treasures, part of their, part of their worship, much like we've been describing here, each and every week, there's a key moment in our, in our worship time where me or one of the other staff members introduces an opportunity for you to give a little treasure back. It has everything to do with our being excited about who Jesus is. Not as a measure of of some bit of obligation, but instead of some bit of enthusiasm. And they offer him these gifts. This gold is the first one. And they lay it down before him. And in this message you hear, the heavens have declared him as the king. The scriptures have declared him as the king. And now they have bowed down to him because he's a king. And the first gift is gold. And gold is value. And it is majesty. And it is everything that tells us that he's the king. But here's the question. Is he your king this morning? I, I don't know about you, but, but where your treasure is, it tells us something. You know, I, I was the, the, the resident director of a couple of dorms right after I graduated from college, and we had this really neat moment happen. Um, we're doing this penny drive, right? And my kids have been, been participating at their school in a penny drive this week, and it made me think of this story, and I thought, wow, you know, maybe I should share this story. But we're taking these pennies, and we're collecting them. We're two of the smallest dorms on campus. I got baseball players in one, and football players, and then I got other students that, that, that just kind of filled in the gaps. But lots of athletes, two small dorms on the edge of campus. And I'm knocking on the doors, and they say, and I say, hey, we're doing a penny drive. You want to give some pennies? And the kids are like, I mean, and I realize they're, they're young adults, but they're still kids barely adults, right? And they were like, well, what's it for? And I said, we're raising money to buy Christmas for some single mothers and their kids. And a lot of these athletes that grew up in broken homes, they were like, wait. And one guy went and he dug around in the bottom of his closet and he got this sack of change and he brings it to me and he hands me this and it's like door after door, these kids are coming out because they identify with these broken homes, and they're like, single mom, kids, not having Christmas? Not as so long as I've got a little money. And they bring their treasure, their change. And I remember we turned it in. And the student council office, like they, like, they fell off their chair almost. They were like, how did you get these two small dorms to, to win this contest between all these dorms across campus? And I said, well, when you believe in something, you support it. These wise men have come a great distance, probably spending a great deal of fortune. And then when they get there, they offer Jesus from their treasure something to testify to the world about him. And the first gift that each and every one of us should give shouldn't be out of our, our abundance, but actually out of our limitation. It ought to be ourself. And that's what worship is when you fall down before him. After that, everything else is sorted out. But if I had to ask you the question this morning, have you given him, have you given him your gold? 
because you knew he was worthy of it, not because you were buying any part of him or because you were, you were doing it out of a sense of obligation, but instead out of a, man, I could honor him in some small way. I could lift him up in some small way. And the story resonates. Gold, frankincense, and myrrh. And we will learn about each and every piece of this. And we'll revisit some of these verses as we talk about it. But I hope that you have the opportunity this morning to understand. There are great passages in the Scripture. Revelation 19, Isaiah 9, we could explore those and talk about them. And and I may spend some time with those. But pictures of his lordship. The Old Testament declaring what it will be. And Revelation talking about a future And kind of this moment where you see the present, a past promise, a present reality, and a future yet to come, all about his lordship. Do you have him as king this morning? A king that wants to shepherd and love you? Do you know him? And let me introduce you to the greatest ruler of all time. Scripture tells us that his reign will last forever and ever. I am not unsettled when things don't go politically the way that people think they should because I have my king and I honor him. Do you know him? If you don't, in a few moments, we'll stand and we'll begin to sing and you can come to the, uh, down the aisle and you can ask me about him. You can catch me afterwards. I'm, I'm gonna invite Boyd to stand at the back and Brandon to stand over here and you can come and talk to each and every one of us and we would be glad to share with you more. If you're uncomfortable doing it in this setting, you can certainly, certainly wait and catch us after. But don't leave here today without knowing this king. Would you stand with me today? And would you bow with me? Lord God, we thank you that as we look to the scriptures, we are reminded that the whole of the story is about you. And the whole of of the universe just declares and cries out that you are the king of kings, that you are the Lord of lords, and that You deserve our worship. And that we ought bow down before you because because you are a king that is loving and kind and a ruler that is is a shepherd. Lord, when other rulers would be villains and thieves, you would be loving and caring. When others would steer us into more lostness and use us up, you would invite us in to be part of your family. Lord, I pray this morning that we would respond to you as king that we would see you as Lord. We ask for this in Jesus' name, amen.